What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Zero. That's the amount of earnings growth we're seeing this season if you exclude the big five tech companies. Is this market too top-heavy? We'll debate. Plus, what happens in Vegas? Michael Bloomberg hits the debate stage for the first time. We'll speak to his campaign co-chair about what his main message will be and if he'll swap back at Elizabeth Warren. And purchase paralysis, the Bloomberg business, and a warning for those who say the Fed will always come to the rescue. That's all coming up today. But we do begin with the markets and Seema Modi with the numbers for us. And the resilience of the market once again in play here, Kelly. Stocks in rebound mode. We're actually at the highs of the day with the Dow currently up 161 points. S&P 500 at a new record at 33.90. The Nasdaq, as you can see, up about a percent. In fact, technology best performing sector after Apple's big warning yesterday. We're seeing recovery uh, among some of the big suppliers. Some of that momentum is thanks to NVIDIA's upgrade at Bernstein. Analog devices, SD Micro, um, as you can see, some of the other big names all up between three and five percent. Take a look at shares of Tesla continuing its march higher today after Piper Sandler raised its price target from 729 to 928. That's a Wall Street high. It's already up nearly 20 percent over the past one week and currently off the highs of the session, though it was trading above that 928 level earlier in today's trade. Kelly, back to you. All right, Seema, thanks. Let's take a closer look at the record rally we're seeing in the S&P and NASDAQ. About 80% of the S&P 500 has now reported earnings, and Goldman Sachs found that only five names have been behind all of the year-over-year earnings growth for the whole index. Together, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet grew their fourth quarter earnings by 16% year-on-year, and without them, earnings growth would be flat. For more on what this means for the broader market, I'm joined by Kim Forrest, founder and chief investment officer at Boca Capital Partners, and David Ellison, portfolio manager at Hennessy Funds. David, first to you. I mean, not just the fact that they have all the earnings growth. I mean, the market cap of Microsoft today, $1.4 trillion and Apple's right on its tails. What does this all tell you? I I think it I think first you got to recognize that these companies are not one company, meaning that, you know, they they have a lot of different businesses. So obviously they're almost representative of the whole economy. Uh, they maybe don't have energy, but they've got most of everything else. But so, here's the worrisome thing. If they are, as you say, representative of the whole economy, the whole stock market, what happens when they inevitably stop going ever higher and ever higher and ever higher? Well, that's, that's, that's why we come to work every day. So right. I think the, the idea is, you, I think factually they're correct, right? I'm not, nobody's challenging those facts. So that's an interesting thing to look at and say, okay, what does that mean? And it tells you that the market is, is they, they like earnings, Right? They want earnings growth. There isn't a lot of it out there. And so they're gravitating toward this. It also tells you the power of the index funds, where they're buying these. As they get bigger, they get bigger in the indexes, and therefore they have to be bought more. So as the money comes in, they just keep getting bought up. Sure. And Kim, look, David makes a great point that people often criticize the market when they say, oh, they're way overpaying in these companies. Well, no, these companies have earnings growth. They're the, they're the only ones that showed it in the fourth quarter. So Maybe it justifies continuing to pay up for them. You know, I know you're not necessarily one to be a trend follower, but they've, they've proven yeah. why they're, you know, why they're such a lasting good investment, at least so far. 
Sure, and I, I, I don't dis dispute any of it. And I, but I would say each has a special situation. For example, Facebook and uh, Google, they are taking over or taking market share um, from advertising plat other advertising platforms, right? So that's just shifting money from one um, spend to another. So that, that's interesting, but it's showing you um, Wall Street rewards the winners. But if you're an investor, don't you want to pick the next winner as opposed to piling on in the current winners? Right. And that's the big question. Where would you be? I, I'm going to jokingly call you Kim Intel Forrest. Uh, you know, <laughs> I know, we, know that, we know that's a favorite of yours, Kim, but where else would you, yeah. uh, do you think people should look for, for those next winners? Well, I mean, always keep in mind, no doubt, that um, Wall Street rewards growth. So you have to look at what kind of situation could grow in the next, I don't know, whatever your time frame is, let's say 18 months to three years. And what is pretty clear is once we get through coronavirus and um, maybe a little bit more trade negotiations, that probably global growth is going to grow because of trade. So who's going to benefit? Yes, there's 5G and my friend Intel and the rest of that semiconductor area, but I also think that maybe um, consumer retail can come back in mm -hmm. that because, you know, the, uh, the pressure's off for tariffs. Mm -hmm. So I think looking in a bunch of different places for where growth can come is a really good idea. David, same question to you, and, and also many times when we've asked the question, what could stop kind of the fang trade, uh, so to speak, from continuing, people will say, they're in a way trading off what's happening in the bond market. And that if you did have suddenly, you know, move, I'm not sure I totally buy this argument, but that a, a substantial move higher in bond yields would kind of change the attractiveness in terms of who, you know, where, where you'd want to be in the market. Do you see something like that happening well, I, I think, as these yields? You know, and, and look, they are the, the lower we go in the 10 year. It is, it is going in tandem with uh, these moves higher in those stocks. Well, certainly that's been the trade for a number of years now. And I think the, the Fed is basically taken away a lot of the volatility, and they, they don't want volatility. The market loves volatility because they can, you know, Wall Street loves that, and we all, but at the end of the day, without the volatility, the winners are going to keep being the winners because they have the capital, they have access to Wall Street, they have access to the best people and the best ideas, and they're going to continue to consolidate around that. So I think it's, unless you get volatility in, in the capital markets where capitalism comes back, where they let price discovery happen, it's going to be very hard for new entrants to come in. I mean, that's a pretty big statement. Well, again, you, the Fed is taking it away by using their balance sheet. You know, we had a 30-year bull market in bonds engineered by the Fed, which helped a lot of people. Now we're having rates that are so low, and the Fed is, doesn't want to take their, their foot off the boot of low rates because they realize if they do that and there's a recession, it's their fault. Mm -hmm. And if it's their fault, that's a big problem for them. And so they, they don't want that. And so they, I think the winners are going to continue to be the winners until the, the Fed has to say enough is enough for this system to start working more, more evenly for everybody. Wow. So you would say for the FANG trade depends on the Fed. Absolutely. And in that case, we get the minutes at the top of next hour could be extra interesting. I'll leave it there for now. Thank you both. David Ellison, Kim Forrest today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, we want to turn now to housing because the latest read on new construction today showed the first drop in three months. But beneath the headline, it appears the housing market is still super strong. Permits surged to a near 13-year high. December's home building was the strongest since 2006. For more on this, let me bring in Daryl Fairweather. She's the chief economist at Redfin. Daryl, what else to you speaks to the strength of the housing market right now? 
Home buyer demand is really strong right now, and that's thanks to low interest rates. We're seeing more, more home buyers trying to get out there and get a home. The big challenge that they're facing is lack of homes for sale. There are fewer homes for sale right now than we've seen in 20 years. So it's definitely good news that new construction is picking up. We're going to need that supply. So let's get this straight. You said there's fewer homes for sale in the whole country than there have been in 20 years. I mean, because that's, that's it, right. I did notice in your notes that you say new listings are down almost 5% from last year. Why is that? Well, home, homeowners are staying in their homes longer. When the market is imbalanced and it's more of a seller's market than a buyer's market, it's really hard to envision yourself selling your home because then you have to go out and buy a home again. So that's just causing people to stay in place much longer. Interesting. So for those trying to get into the market, the younger groups and so forth, especially with prices where they are, it's difficult. Uh, you think that those trends are going to get worse then for the next couple of years? Well, the new construction numbers are promising. It says that in the next couple of years, we may see more homes on the market. But it's going to take a while for those homes to come on. And it's probably not going to be enough to really uh, make a big difference because there are so many people who want to enter home ownership. Right. So the new home construction, I think we're finally back to something in the one million pace or so. How many homes do you think we need in this country? How undersupplied are we? The numbers vary depending on how you calculate it, at least a million homes, but by some estimates, it's as much as four million homes. Wow. And the, the other sort of final piece of this is that it's not just single-family housing uh, that people have interest in. Obviously, it's, it's rents. I mean, there are some parts of the country, if you're of a certain age, depending on where you work, single-family home ownership isn't necessarily sensible. Uh, you're stuck renting. Do you see anything there in terms of the multifamily starts that shows maybe there's some relief coming for renters as well? Well, the places that we're seeing the most home construction are places where land is pretty affordable. That's in the southeast and the south. And they're actually focusing more on single-family homes there because land is so plentiful. Where we need a lot more dense housing is in places like California and those big cities where there are lots of people who want to live there. But land is so expensive that home builders really want to recoup their costs. They tend to focus on more luxury multifamily homes. Interesting. So that's not going to help in the near term anyhow. Uh, Daryl, well, we appreciate it. Thank you so much today. Thank you. Daryl Fairweather of Redfin. Don't go anywhere. There's a whole lot more still ahead on The Exchange. Coming up, in a rare move, China says it may adjust its 2020 GDP growth target. How big will the cut be? And what does it mean for the rest of the region? Plus, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Michael Bloomberg's campaign co-chair on his first debate appearance, who he'll target and what his main policy message will be. And purchase paralysis, the $13 cereal, and to infinity and beyond. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The total number of confirmed coronavirus cases now stands at more than 75,000, including 29 here in the U.S. That number includes 14 Americans who tested positive since being evacuated from the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan. All 328 evacuees from that ship are being evaluated and remain in quarantine in two Air Force bases in the U.S. The total number of deaths is now more than 2,000 worldwide. In an effort to battle the outbreak, China is turning to its tech companies for help. For more on that, we go to Yunus Yun in Beijing. Kelly, authorities here are sweeping for unidentified cases, tracing recent purchases of fever and drug medicine through drugstores and online, and looking for potential patients via health apps. The government here is leveraging off of all sorts of technology to try to control the outbreak. The Chinese government is calling for all hands to join the fight against the coronavirus, including mechanical ones. Robots like Pepper are in hospitals at the virus epicenter, directing patients to doctors. Pepper was built by Beijing startup Cloud Mines, one of several companies taking their high tech to the hot zone. The robots do not carry the diseases and robots uh, can be easily disinfected. They can you know, face as the first front line with all the unknown patients. Unmanned drones are on the front line too, disinfecting public places, delivering lab samples, and urging people to wear masks. Face recognition software and infrared cameras now identify potential patients. Thermal scanners have been installed at the supermarket, subways, and in train stations to detect those who have a fever. They're a backup to temperature gauges. Big data, as some local officials say, has become the prevention efforts piercing eyes. Companies like China Unicom now offer a service to list all the cities that you've been to in the past 14 days. My phone says that I've been only in Beijing. All moves that could propel China's high-tech push. I think these types of work and effort is further driving, you know, adaption of new technology. While fighting an outbreak. He and many other tech entrepreneurs believe that if there is a silver lining to this outbreak, it could be that their industry, as well as others, could come out stronger. Kelly? All right, Eunice, thanks. And the outbreak isn't just putting pressure on the Chinese government to respond. It's putting pressure on the Chinese economy, too. Seema Modi joins me with more on that. Uh, Seema, the government's policy advisor admitting... They'll have to adjust GDP targets. Yeah, and why that's uh, important is because Beijing has unveiled a number of stimulus measures over the last two weeks to offset the negative impact of the coronavirus on China's economy. Despite that, a policy advisor for the Chinese government saying that they may still need to readjust their 2020 GDP forecast. And that comes amid a number of travel restrictions, factory shutdowns, consumers increasingly staying at home. Wall Street strategists have already uh, downgraded their growth forecast for the first quarter in China. J.P. Morgan at 1%, Nomura at 3%. Uh, We're also watching the verbiage from a number of multinationals, as you know. Today we heard from Adidas, uh, the German sportswear company, saying that it's already seen an 85% drop in China's sales since the 25th of January compared to the same period a year ago. And it's interesting because you look at these consumer companies that are really uh, dependent on the Chinese growth story. But in a way, Adidas is being hit in two ways, not just by the consumption story that has certainly slowed down, but also the supply chain effect. About a a third, uh, excuse me, about a one-fifth of its supply chain is in China, although it certainly has diversified to other countries like Vietnam and Cambodia. That factory shutdown is certainly being felt. I mean, it's obvious, look, if Adidas is down 85%, it's clear that GDP in the first quarter in China has almost ground to a halt. Now, there are more consumer discretionary. Obviously, there's essential services and, and things that are still taking place. But I mean, the government, in order to maintain credibility, will have to report a fairly low 
number in terms of any growth at all, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now the question is when will Beijing really readjust their numbers to uh, align with the numbers that we're seeing from Wall Street strategists to the companies that are reporting earnings and really showing the type of uh, decline in demand they've already seen on, in the country. I think what's also worth, worth noting is the spillover effect on a number of Asian economies from Singapore to Thailand, as we've been discussing. Even Germany. Yes, exactly. Germany as well. Uh, it's very much dependent on China's supply chain. So that will be one thing to watch. I was in Paris over the weekend, you know, spoken, speaking to a number of sales reps just at the mall. And you really could see that tourism, the travel restrictions has certainly hurt the luxury sector in that Was this city. a business trip or did the fact that it was Valentine's Day seem have anything to do with the timing just a personal trip <laughs> ended up going there and i had to i had to ask people what they were feeling on the ground yeah for sure but did you see shortages already because we were here tyler's saying he sees some shortages in the malls uh, in new jersey foot traffic was down based on the conversations i had with sales reps there um so yeah they were saying you could, this is very different than what they saw last year when lunar new year certainly incentivizes the chinese traveler to go to paris and other big cities and and buy these big ticket items wow Right. But now the question is, will we see a second uh, year rebound? And I think a lot of Wall Street strategists, even though they're bringing down their forecast for the first quarter, they're still expecting that once the virus dissipates, the Chinese consumer will come back in force. All right. We'll see if they do. Uh, Sima, we appreciate it. Thank you. Sima Modi. For more on the coronavirus, be sure to tune in to CNBC's special report. Outbreak coronavirus will be live at 7 p.m. Eastern tonight. Coming up, where's Marie Kondo when you need her? Bed Bath & Beyond's new CEO says decluttering the store could be the key to sales. Is he right? We'll debate in rapid fire. Plus, from Sin City to Spin City, the next Democratic presidential debate is tonight, with Mike Bloomberg making his much-anticipated debut. We'll hear from his campaign co-chair about what we should expect. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back. Here are some of the movers at this hour. Groupon is getting crushed down more than 40 percent today after disappointing earnings and plans to exit the goods category. Groupon also announcing it will pursue a reverse stock split. Remember, this was a $31 stock in 2011. It is under $2 a share. NVIDIA now hitting a 52-week high following an upgrade to outperform at Bernstein. The firm raising its price target to 340. That's a new street high. The analysts there noting the NVIDIA story is much cleaner now than it was a year ago. And shares of Garmin are leading the S&P and hitting a nearly 12-year high. The company reporting better than expected results, raised its dividend and provided an upbeat outlook, saying all of its business segments saw growth. 
not bad. Now to Courtney Reagan for a CNBC News update. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Attorney General Barr and FBI Director Ray attending a Justice Department forum on the law that shields tech companies from legal liability for what users post. Barr siding with critics of the legislation, saying the law has grown beyond its original intent. Technology has changed in ways that no one, including the drafters of Section 230, could have imagined. These changes have been accompanied by an expansive interpretation of Section 230 by the courts, seemingly stretching beyond the statute's text and original purpose. Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang is joining CNN as a political commentator. He was known for his Freedom Dividend Plan, which would have provided every American adult with $1,000 a month as universal base income. And one of President Trump's biggest fans has turned his home in India into a shrine. He says he began worshiping Trump four years ago when the president appeared to him in a dream. The president will visit India next week. It's a CNBC News update at this hour. Kelly, Courtney, back over to you. he's got to go visit this guy. You know, if you uh, appear to someone in a dream and it really impacts your life, then hey, you know. He's got to go visit him. Yeah, Can you imagine? I, I, I would think if he... if. Knowing the President Trump that we all know publicly, I think he would definitely want to see the shrine to him. Yeah. Right. Th- this would be, they got to fit it into the schedule. Yeah. I know it's a big country, but uh, Courtney, thanks. Thanks. Courtney Reagan. And we'll see Courtney Rapid Fire. Here's what else is coming up on The Exchange. Ahead, bed, bath, and restructuring. Bloomberg's business could fetch billions. Why one analyst says Tesla has hotwired human psychology. And what if the Fed doesn't come to the rescue in a potential slowdown? All that and more is ahead on The Exchange. Hello. Uh, Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here with their takes on the headlines are Courtney Reagan, Robert Frank, and Morgan Brennan. Welcome, everybody. Uh, First up, Bed Bath & Beyond is trying to solve, quote, purchase paralysis. They will spend $400 million to declutter stores, upgrade technology, and improve the supply chain. The CEO is saying too many options, overlapping promotions, and a lack of price clarity have led to many customers leaving stores empty-handed. And while shares are up now about 8% today, still down about 30% on the year court. So, you know, (sighs) investors warming up to this, I guess, as the day goes on. Um, But is it going to make sense for them to take stuff out of the stores in order to sell more? I think it could. Um, I am reminded of Macy's that looked at this somewhat similarly. I remember giving an example at one point not so many years ago and said, do we really need 15 black pumps? Hmm. It's a little overwhelming for folks, both online and in-store. They come to us so that we curate fashion for them. Let's give them the three best. And they cited examples where that did work. So I think in some cases... It could work. I think you can go too far the other way. Right. But you um, know, here's the weird thing to me about these stories. No one ever says Walmart or Target suffer from having too many options. Why just bed bath? Well, I think in that case, Kelly, Walmart and Target have many, many items, but of many, many different kinds of products. So one of the examples in the articles that I was reading was about can openers. Do you need 12 kinds of can openers? No, probably not. You maybe need like three or four of the best. <laughs> Whereas Walmart probably doesn't have 12 can openers, even as big as they 
their stores are because they have so many categories. Yeah. So when, I think that's potentially the difference you're pointing and out. When price, you're facing the existential yeah. threat of Amazon and you're counting can openers, well, <laughs> that doesn't seem are, to be, Amazon has an infinite number of can openers. Well, so, for strategy here. Exactly. I, I, and I know they're, they're investing in online. But look, when you're spending $600 million to buy back stock and pay down debt, at a time when you should be doing like Walmart and putting all the money you have into yeah. online and picking up yeah. in store but and getting bigger on the web, like that's the- so can you know, at this point your your leaders in online are established. You know, it takes a ton, a ton of money and investment. Should should they even try to pursue? Uh, that Courtney, channel? tell me that the successes in retail are those that have made that shift, or at yeah. least combining in-store and online. Exactly. That's what you have to do. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm just still a proponent. I don't think we're going to live in a world with no stores. I, I just don't think that's true. No, all I the don't online know. startups are now opening stores Ex- all over the place. Exactly. I don't think the stores will look like they do today. I don't think we'll need nearly as many. Bed Bath & Beyond is trying to do a lot of things, including what you're talking yeah. about online. And that is a key criticism for many, many years about how far behind Bed Bath & Beyond fell. For instance, the other thing, they, they don't offer buy online, pick up in store in, their, in all mm. their stores, which is crazy yeah. because everybody does that. So but, that's another thing that new, the company is And I still wonder, to, to the point earlier, Morgan, about can they, if they are competing in the buy now, pick up in store space, they're not the cheapest price. I mean, people no, don't not, use are the coupons, they? but we kind of know the markup is the difference there. Yeah, and I, I, I know they've said that they're going to hang on to the coupons, but they're going to make the pricing strategy clearer as well. Um, the fact that they are making these investments, I think it's $400 million investing back into the store and supply chain inventory, et cetera. But to Robert's point, $600 million towards stock buybacks and paying down the debt. What's the right balance there? I mean, the other key takeaway here is this is a company that's been hit hard, hasn't necessarily made the right investments to this point, but is still sitting on this pile of cash right. to potentially do it. Now it's all going to come down to the strategy and the execution. There's also a lot of assets that they're looking at potentially selling. You probably didn't know that they owned uh, um, Decorous. They own Cost Plus World Market. We Love know about Bye Bye Baby. Bye Most Bye of Baby, which I'm sorry. Bye that, they could have really leveraged that when yeah. Toys R Us went bankrupt. Yeah, they own Christmas tree yeah. shops. I mean, there's things they could do. They did a sale leaseback. They sold personalization mall.com. So that's $500 million just, in just those two. Every time I've gone to Bye Bye Baby to get diapers in the last few weeks, they have been out. So I, fundamental retail execution, how, the one thing people are going to your stores for, you don't have them over and over Maybe again. Maybe it's coming from China and True. it can't come in on the containers. True. I don't know. I'm literally throwing that out yeah. there. I don't know. So don't, <laughs> I'll have to I'll look that up, but I don't know. The Twitter masses are coming from yeah. court. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's move on. Uh, is Bloomberg the business for sale? A campaign spokesperson for Mike Bloomberg says he would sell his namesake financial data and media company if he's elected president. But he had already pledged to sell if he even ran for president, as Kayla Tausche was reporting. There's antitrust concern over selling to a bigger company as one reason why he might not pursue a deal while Trump is in office. Robert, what do you make of the position he's now found himself in and the likelihood this company has put on the block? So as we learned in 2016, there is no rule or law that says the president can't run and own a business while he's in office, right? Trump still owns his company. It's run by his sons. What Bloomberg has said is that if he wins as president, he will sell it. What the plan is, is to put it into a blind trust, which is a ridiculous misnomer because he knows what's in the company. It's a blind trust with 2020 vision, basically, because he knows who the customers are. So, yes, put it in this trust, and the trust would sell it. Now, he said he wouldn't sell it to private equity, nor would he sell it to a foreign buyer. So that gets rid of the allegations that there'd be some foreign influence on the president. But the biggest challenge is this is a 50 to 60 billion dollar company that basically has, if not a monopoly, dominance in this space. And there just aren't a lot of logical buyers for it. Yeah, that's going to be the key question, right? Okay, so who is potentially your buyer? How long does it take for that to come to fruition? Are you going to get market value? I mean, this is a process that could potentially, if, if, if 
he were to be elected president, could take years. Yes, yeah, could take years. And Absolutely. reportedly not interested in selling to a private equity buyer. He can't. He, he's, yeah. he said, I will specifically not do that or a foreign buyer. So, so you take those out those of the equation right. and you're left with Warren Buffett. <laughs> right. and, and really, you're left with Warren Buffett. And so, Which if Buffett wanted him to be president, you know, yes, yeah, he, he could, could take it off his he hand. He could help him out. And but, Warren Buffett know, would still have $60 billion left over if he bought Bloomberg for $60 billion. So he's got the cash. Yeah, yeah. you can try and un- unravel the conflicts of interest, whether it's President Trump, whether it's Bloomberg. But that's what makes it hard but for Bloomberg these are to take on Trump with totally. the same Successful, issue. Exactly, 100%. And so here's what uh, Dan Premack was saying at Axios, just naming the number of issues that would come up here. The conflicts uh, inherent with foreign buyers. Robert, I know you mentioned this. Private equity funds, he's turned down. What if two bidders come in with the same price? Is he paying a Wall Street bank? What about Congress uh, in terms of antitrust or any kind of investigation, just as he's setting up a new administration? And who are the viable bidders? And look, the big clients of Bloomberg LP are the huge banks. So anything that has to do with the huge banks, if Bloomberg is elected while he's in office, would be questioned because they are the guy that pays the bills at Bloomberg LP. And That's we're going to speak conflict. to his, one of his campaign chairs uh, in just the next segment. So we're going to ask about this, obviously. Right. I'm not sure if, it, if it's really a debate topic. It doesn't feel quite so much like that, except maybe to draw the analogies between, hey, how would you take on President Trump yeah. over his conflicts of interest? And remember, Trump promised when he was running that he would sell his business, and he didn't. Well, there you go. So we've been down this road. Maybe yes. Bloomberg doesn't He's not going to sell it at all. There we go. That's your answer. Uh, how about this? SpaceX is partnering with Space Adventures to send private customers into orbit. Uh, no word on the financial arrangements yet, but the trip would last about five days and is expected to launch uh, sometime in around 2021. Uh, this, as shares of fellow space exploration company Virgin Galactic have been galactic. The stock hitting another all-time high today. It has nearly tripled this year. Um, Morgan, what... Why is it because Virgin Galactic is sort of the publicly traded vehicle? Yeah, if you want, it's one of the, the only pure play publicly space traded suddenly? space names. What's changed? Oh, I think investor sentiment has changed um, around space. This realization that you know this is a sector that is coming to life. The fact that you do are starting very, very, very slowly, slowly to have some of these more you know um, public pure play names. SpaceX, obviously, it's private. I. I would not expect that company to go public anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Gwen Shotwell, the president and COO, told me a couple, about a year and a half ago now that the chances of an IPO, they would consider it that when they're doing regular flights to Mars. To so, Mars. To Mars. Okay. So that's like probably what do you think years the market, away. What do you think the market cap is the value of SpaceX is? Well, two roughly. weeks ago or today. Because it's based about, on. Last funding round, I think it's about $33, $34 billion. Billion dollars. Billion. So billion dollars. Um, yeah, and you can't play SpaceX, but you can play Tesla. Right. You can play Virgin Galactic, exactly. right? So. There is a unifying theme to some of the stock moves we've seen this year. It's just amazing to me that I, I don't know that it's proven to be a profitable business. I mean, Robert, it's, it's, that's well, so out- oh, right, you're right. old-fashioned and outmoded. <laughs> you need to make money. No. <laughs> I think I'd say two points on that. The first is SpaceX has said that in most years, unless they've had anomalies or explosions, there have been a couple of those years, they have been profitable. Right. Starlink, their new satellite constellation that they are putting into orbit and very rapidly. There's been talk that they could spin that off in the next couple of years. That's something that's expected to be very profitable, according to SpaceX. And that makes sense because that's a commercial business to business model. Virgin Galactic. There's been a lot of focus on the gross margins, even though service hasn't actually started yet, which is what makes that stock chart particularly eye popping. Focus on the gross margins. Is the fact that is the fact that you don't actually have 
a service that has launched yet. The business right. hasn't fully taken yeah, off Why yet. are we talking about gross margins? Yeah, well, it's barely a business, right? Well, I think or, once you have the hardware in place, it's the services, right? Right, and trying to leverage um, that. But we're not there yet. So the earliest we'll be there is this. Morgan's going to be on that first flight. There better be good in-flight meals. That's all I can <laughs> say for that price. <laughs> no, it's space, space food. food. Robert, we, Remember space food when you yeah. were a kid, the dehydrated stuff? Yeah, no, it's nasty. I uh, speaking of dehydrated <laughs> stuff, General Mills is planning to boost slumping sales with a new $13 cereal, I was rolling my eyes at this until I realized I have it in my pantry. Uh, <laughs> the Morning Summit cereal, which I bought at Costco, has tons of yummy, healthy ingredients like cranberries, oats, and raisins. Um, but that our cereal must have been better. Yeah, well, so, so here's the thing. It, this is the cereal sales chart that tells you the whole story about the stock and everything else. We eat it 78 times a year on average last year, less than two times a week. Compare that with the 90s heyday when it was uh, much higher. So it's not a $13 for a regular <laughs> box of cereal. This is, this is a 38-ounce uh, box of cereal. So I did the math, actually. Yep. <laughs> it's $0.34 cents an ounce, yeah. okay, yeah. versus your regular Cheerios, which are about $0.40 cents an ounce, and some of the specialty stuff more like $0.50 cents an ounce. So it's not an expensive cereal per se. It's just a big box, and it's delicious. But it's, it says 19 servings in the box. Is that true? I've yeah, eaten more than one serving. I don't believe it. 19 they, they say a serving is box? like half a cup. I and, go through it in like a week. And by the way, it. talk about healthy. It's got 35 carbs, 18 <laughs> grams of sugar. Yeah, I know. It's, a, it's such a girl cereal. But even girls are <laughs> in the protein And thing. you can't even fi- I couldn't even find a box for 13 bucks. The cheapest I could find was $16. I know. And it you, goes up to $25. But you've got to go to Costco. And that's what the, that People is a brilliant it, distribution look. channel. No, I love this cereal. I got it from my mom. She's eating it. I'm looking at this like, this is Morning Summit. I thought I was the only one. I don't know. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of the whole cereal comeback craze anyway. I feel like so many people are doing intermittent fasting. So many other people are yeah. doing eating on the go. You've got the overnight oats and that whole craze protein heavy but here's the thing i think the real play is on demographics so general mills is thinking maybe now this generation you know uh, population growth and so forth you look at that chart of how yeah. when cereal consumption peaked it was when we the millennials mm-hmm. were like eight years old right so is there this idea that you get you know like i, I mean i had to buy cheerios the last couple of years for the first time in a long time i was gonna say it's like toy brands you pass that's, on the brand that you know to your yes, kids exactly that's the play you also have to have non-expired milk which is a tricky thing for me to keep in stock <laughs> in my house all the time so cereal's out of the question <laughs> we'll leave it there uh, courtney robert and morgan thank you all today we appreciate it a democratic presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg will make his debut on the stage tonight in Las Vegas. We'll talk to his campaign co-chair next. And a reminder to follow the show on Twitter at CNBC The Exchange. And if you want to help a sister out, you can also follow me. Please follow at Kelly CNBC. Please make her just... This is getting more the- pathetic, by the way. You should get the 5,000. It'll work, though. Follow Kelly at Kelly CNBC. Uh, 4,300. <laughs> 4,370 something. What do I do yeah. for you in return for this social media? Uh, I, I'm doing this purely altru- altruistically because I want you back. As a so- You're on Instagram too? Oh, yeah. You I'm are a social. Uh, follow Kelly. No. Uh, <laughs> at, uh, Kelly uh, anyway, on Twitter. Coming up, uh, you're almost 5,000. Is it? It's almost 5,000. Yeah, well, it's 5,100 now. So thanks, everybody. Wow, that's really good. Uh, I don't want to brag. Uh, we'll be back <laughs> after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon. And we want to bring your attention to shares of Smile Direct Club taking a hit right now. You can see down almost 2.3, So this is on a Reuters headline that Smile Direct Club's top dentist is at risk of losing his license in a California crackdown. Uh, so the dentist, his name is Jeffrey A. Solitzer. According to the AG, he is being accused of violating state law, defrauding state dental regulators, and acting with gross negligence toward patients while helping Smile Direct Club grow its business. Again, that is according to Reuters. So, Kelly, you might remember that just last week, NBC News published an investigative piece. Since that piece, the stock is down 14 percent. Since its IPO in September, it's down 45 percent. I do want to say that we have reached out to both the California AG and the company, but have not heard back just yet. Kelly, I'll send All it right. over to you. Rahel, thank you. Shares down about 4 percent to 12.50 or thereabouts. Now, the Democratic presidential candidates are set to face off on the debate stage in Las Vegas tonight, just three days ahead of the Nevada caucus. Kayla Tausche is there with what's at stake. Hi again, Kayla. Hi, Kelly. Nine debates in, and you will see a new face in the mix tonight. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg will be on stage for the first time this cycle, despite not being on any of the early state ballots so far. He qualified by notching more than 10 percent support in four national polls. And also because the DNC dropped its requirement for grassroots fundraising, a point his rivals have seized on, as well as his ties to Wall Street and his policies as mayor. Now, Bloomberg, as a newcomer, will field much of tonight's attacks, but he plans to dish out some of his own as well against the undisputed frontrunner Bernie Sanders. Campaign manager Kevin Sheeky tweeting that the oppo research on Sanders could fill the empty Foxconn facility in Wisconsin. Here in Nevada, an influential union of hospitality workers declined to endorse Sanders because they like their health care. So you've seen so many candidates reaching out to that group still vying for its support. What we say is we're going to stand with our goals to be sure to get elected a candidate who will support us. Uh, Worth noting, Sanders still has a double-digit lead in polling nationally as well as here in Nevada. Caucus takes place, Kelly, on Saturday, but not before fireworks on stage here in Vegas tonight. I am looking forward to it. Kayla, thanks so much. Kayla Tausche, a great deal is at stake, like Kayla said, and lots of attention will be placed on Michael Bloomberg. With us now from Las Vegas is Michael Nutter. He's political co-chair of the Bloomberg campaign and the former mayor of Philadelphia. Uh, Mr. Mayor, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. What is the main message uh, Mr. Bloomberg is going to emphasize tonight? Well, he gets the opportunity for the first time now, as you mentioned earlier, uh, qualifying for tonight's debate. He gets to Uh, spend some quality time uh, with all the candidates. But more seriously, uh, he'll be talking about his view and vision for being president of the United States, why he is the best candidate to take on Donald Trump uh, through uh, the general election and win, uh, and uh, his plans and vision uh, for uh, a restored and strengthened, unified uh, America. Well, I guess Elizabeth Warren gave you guys a little bit of a heads up in that tweet yesterday where she said, basically, if you want to see how we're going to go after Donald Trump, Tune into the debate to see how we'll go after another billionaire uh, who's trying to buy his way into this campaign. What response should we expect uh, from Michael Bloomberg tonight? Well, you know, Mike Bloomberg actually has a record of service. He has a record as a business person. He has a record as a philanthropist. Uh, You know, all of the campaigns uh, are buying ads, uh, and that's what we're doing. Uh, And uh, because we have a message that we need to communicate, uh, like those folks have been doing uh, for the last, you know, six to nine months. Uh, you get on the stage because you qualify 
under the rules uh, set by the DNC. Nothing more, nothing less. So, uh, you know, uh, Mike plans to uh, talk about his view and vision. Uh, everyone knows uh, that the candidates are going to be coming after him. Uh, you know, you can see that coming a mile away. He's not going to be a punching bag. He is a, a uh, New Yorker, uh, and he's a tough guy. So uh, he'll be uh, certainly polite, cool, calm, collected, uh, but he's not going to be taking a whole lot of stuff uh, from folks. Uh, if they come at him, they should anticipate uh, a whole lot more coming back. All right. I wish it weren't uh, starting so late. Uh, it's going to be tough for those of us on the East Coast to stay up and catch the action. But I understand. You, you mentioned that he's going to emphasize this message that he's been out there flooding the airwaves with, and, and he's here to communicate that tonight. But he's flip-flopped on so many issues, including defining issues like stop and frisk uh, of his mayoralcy, that, you know, I understand right now he's trying to win in, in what's a very sort of left uh, progressive primary, but is he at risk of, in trying to do so, alienating the viewers he, or the voters he would then need in order to beat Donald Trump? You know, he, he seems like somebody who's sort of a pragmatic, centrist manager type until some of his policies now yes. start to sound like they're coming from the, the Sanders-Warren wing of the party. Now, you know, uh, Kelly, it is always appropriate to apologize uh, for the negative impact of any policy that any of us uh, may have uh, overseen or supported at any point in time. Uh, the issue is not about the policy. The issue is about the negative impact uh, that uh, that particular police strategy had. And it is always appropriate uh, when you realize that you've made a mistake uh, to apologize. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, even in politics. I think that's a sign of character and strength. Uh, that if upon reflection you realize that, you know, things weren't as perfect uh, as you may have thought or they weren't as great as you may have thought. And it takes a really strong person, I think a leader, uh, to say, hey, I made a mistake. And for that, I'm very sorry. That's what Mike has said. One final question, which goes to the amount that he has spent so far, um, which I, I think is something over a half a billion dollars at this point, the most that's ever been spent on a presidential campaign. And, and this is still just the primary how much is he prepared to spend? Is there a ceiling? Does he have a sense of how much it would cost uh, to spend in order to beat Donald Trump? Mike is focused on defeating Donald Trump and making him a one-term president. He is prepared to do what needs to be done uh, during the course of his candidacy. And you know well that he's also said if for some reason uh, he is not the Democratic nominee, then he will not only fully support uh, our Democratic nominee, but also continue to fund a significant part of our operation. And so he is prepared to spend whatever it takes to defeat Donald Trump in November of 2020. All right. Michael Nutter, thank you, sir. Thank you, Kelly. I know it's going to be a, a big day for you. We'll be tuning in tonight and we'll see what happens as Michael Absolutely. Bloomberg takes the stage with the rest of the Democratic field. Meanwhile, shares of Tesla have absolutely surged this year, and they're up 21% in just the past week. What the street's biggest bull says will keep powering even higher is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We are closely following Tesla, the company getting a vote of confidence from Piper Sandler as the firm hiked its price target to $928 per share. That's the highest near-term target among any major firm. Analyst Alexander Potter writing that Tesla has, quote, 
hotwired human psychology and turned consumers into unwitting climate warriors by, he says, not just driving Tesla cars, but also buying batteries and solar power products. Uh, he says it's that push into other areas of clean energy that can power the stock even higher. Although shares of Tesla climbing about 8% today are already near his price target. They're up about 21% over the past week. And we're just minutes away from the latest Fed minutes. Investors will certainly be looking for rate cut clues. We'll talk about whether one's coming next. Welcome back. I want to quickly draw your attention to shares of Tyson, which are seeing a sharp move lower, about 2% at the lows. The company says they're seeing a slowdown of business in China since January because ports are backed up due to the coronavirus. Uh, there could be more to follow in their wake. Now, we're just moments away from the release of the minutes from the January Fed meeting. The market's looking for any details on the Fed's plan to end the expansion of its balance sheet, its plans for the repo market, and any hint that they're ready to cut if the economy stalls. Joining me now is Greg Ipp. He's chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Greg, it's great to see you. And look, at the start of the show, we were having a debate about whether the market's too top-heavy with the FANG names. And once again, it came back to this idea that as long as the Fed's willing to kind of backstop the market and the economy and cut again if need be, there's no reason to get out of names like that. You know, I think that's exactly the right uh, the right take on this, Kelly. I mean, the earnings numbers don't support the kind of strength of the uh, rally we've seen. What we have seen is the Fed operating on at least one front to keep money markets in shape by doing a lot of, uh, you know, treasury bill buying. They insist it's not quantitative easing, but tell that to the market. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is that the tone of the remarks out of Fed officials in the last few months is that even though they like where monetary policy is right now, you detect a distinctive bias to ease based on both the fact that inflation continues to struggle to stay at 2% or higher and this coronavirus impact. So I think in that sense, yes, probably the most important uh, cushion for the market here, it's not the fundamentals or the earnings. It's a very friendly Federal Reserve. Greg, what, what do you think? What does that brain of yours think about the inverted yield curve again? I mean, we were here early last year. They cut three times. We got out of it. The unemployment rate is, is still incredibly low. The economy seems, by many measures, pretty strong. If we're inverted again, do they need to cut again? How would you kind of square all, all of these different uh, messages out there? Kelly, I was not one who ever thought that the inversion or the flattening of the curve in the last few years was a recession signal and a strong sign the Fed ought to cut. And I still feel that way now. We know there are things going on in the markets like the very high level of central bank bond buying that has artificially depressed the long end and makes it much easier for the curve to flatten. But that said, I also believe that the rate of change, the fact that it used to be steeper and is less steep now, is probably forecasting something about the economy. And I think it would be foolish to ignore the likely impact on the U.S. economy of, of the coronavirus impact. We've seen the price of uh, oil come off like about 10 bucks now. That is going to be felt in the oil patch, which is a major source of investment and so on. We really haven't seen the manufacturing numbers uh, uh, turn around. I'm not in the camp of thinking that this means there's going to be a recession. I'm not even in the camp that thinks that it means the Fed has to cut. I am in the camp of thinking that this definitely puts a downward bias to what the Fed does next. They're going to be watching the data very closely, and I think that they have a relatively low bar to easing if they see any sign that either inflation numbers are sinking again or that the economy is starting to hit a soft patch. So basically, Greg, you would say that the most important thing to watch for in the minutes and any rhetoric over the next several weeks and months is any pushback. Because, look, the market's more than 50-50 priced a rate cut this summer. So if they lean against that, that would be the change, right? Right. I don't think that they're necessarily that unhappy about where that pricing is. I wouldn't be surprised if their own thinking, at least among the leadership, is that far off. But remember, we're dealing with unknowns here. You know, a few weeks ago when Powell testified, right, the uh, coronavirus was still spreading. We didn't know the extent. Well, the virus, the epidemic is more serious now, but there are signs that it's, the rate of infection is starting to slow. And we have yet to see it at least affect U.S. economic data. 
So relative to where we were two or three months, uh, excuse me, two or three weeks ago, I would say the case for easing has probably gotten a little bit weaker just because that economic follow-through hasn't come. Everybody is kind of in the same position, watching the data, watching the behavior, seeing if there are more like warnings like Tyson Foods or from Apple that the corporate sector in the United States is really being hit by this. And unless we do see that widespread stuff, my inclination is yeah. that they will tough it out. All right. Greg, it's great to see you. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Greg Ip from the Wall Street Journal. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.